with me to Second uh, Timothy, chapter number three. Second Timothy, chapter three. Uh, this morning. writing to Timothy, tells him to stir up the gift that's within him uh, so that he may be a faithful minister and the task that God has placed him in. And I think um, as a church, as a Christian, uh, personally as a pastor, I think that is something we need to do quite often. And I hope, as we'll see this morning, something um, uh, God will do through his word, encouraging us how to live out and minister in the world in which we live in. Because just if I could say it this way, there is no greater time to serve God than today. There's no better season in life for the church to be the church than this season we're in. There's no greater need for the world than for the church to minister the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ faithfully and consistently. Would you agree with that? Well, if you do, read with me. Here, verse number one of chapter three, he says, but understand this, that in these last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. But as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Verse number 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my practice, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystria, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from a childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed down by God profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, suit their own passions, turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Uh, All of us should put a star. That should be our desire. Uh, Verse number 7. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Pray with me one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the church as we gather together this morning, for the spirit that works in our hearts. Pray that you would do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. I know when we think about something like this holiday season or this time of remembering Independence Day, Fourth of July, nationalism or whatever comes to your mind, different responses tend to surface, some with anger, some with disappointment, some with grief, considering the world that we live in is much different than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. When I say there's no greater time to serve God than now or no better season or or no greater need, I understand I say that with the reality that eight of the top ten cities in America that are labeled post-Christian are in our backyard. You have Rochester and Albany, New York, Burlington, Vermont, and strung all over New England, uh, cities that are post-Christian. By that, simply, they don't read their Bible, they don't pray to God, they don't believe that their faith makes much difference at all. They, for the majority, have never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And what you come to find out is it's not just what we find in New England, though we do have a shared value on words like service and sacrifice and honor to some degree, we find increasingly more that our values or the Christian values or, or God's values and morality is, is becoming less and less popular, less and less familiar to the society that we live in. We're living in a dark age. I don't mean to paint the picture bleak or dark, but it is, it is just the reality of the world we live in. And yet instead of meeting that with kind of a, a distanced opinion and instead of being distracted by all the things that we can be distracted or living with a discouraged mentality, we come to the Word of God and we find encouragement how to faithfully and successfully minister in the world that is dark. Because let's face it, the world has always been dark where the church has worked and served and ministered. We are not alone. Now, there's many places you could go in the New Testament, I think. Uh, one in particular uh, is the one we find in front of us. Paul writing to Timothy as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus and, and all the things that are going on there in Ephesus, a godless city. And Paul has already came in conflict with some of the pagan worship in the city as he's preached the gospel there and Timothy has left to pastor the church. He's already wrote to him how to, how to reorganize the church and fix things that have had gone wrong. First Timothy, you have that in your Bible. This, the second letter he's writing to him, is a man who's dying. One who is giving his life for the faith and for the cause of Christ. 
You find that at the end of chapter number 4, in our reading, that he is ready to be poured out. He's ready to give his life. And so in his last words to his young son in the faith or his, uh, his friend, his partner in the gospel ministry, he is writing words of encouragement to remain faithful and consistent and continue on. We find in opening of 2 Timothy, he's to stir up the gift that's given to him that, uh, that God has given him. Be responsible and stir that up in your life. He's to remain faithful in the ministry against all odds and illustrations in chapter number 2 of, of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer come to surface. At the end of chapter number 3, we have read that glorious declaration of the Word of God being it's an infallible, inerrant God's Word given to us to perform the task that God has given to us. And of course, that great command in chapter number 4, preach the Word with all the weight that He could muster uh, up. Judgment Day, uh, accountability, Timothy, be faithful. But he begins here in chapter number 3 in a, in a unique way, and we might say in a, in, a, in a sobering way, as he says that as you minister in these last days, this is what you will face. Now by last days, we mean by that, and uh, the last days between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And it is the last days described as this period of time in which the church will... will proclaim the gospel and carry the mandate of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. It is the last days because we're anticipating the return of Christ who will consummate all things and finish all things that he started at his first advent. But here, not only typical of Timothy's day, it is a reminder that even as time goes on, the last days uh, shows an intensity of these things to be experienced in the world. Just what Timothy would face and what we might face in small degrees, but as we see in our own culture, the, the growing intensity of these, these descriptions found in verses 2 through 4 are continually manifesting themselves over and over. And so he says, this is how you're to minister in the last days. And before he begins to give more instruction as he has already done, he, he begins why, by just simply surveying the land and some of you build a house and some of you have built projects or maybe you've started a garden or whatever the case may be and you, you want to survey the area where you're working what's going on there and where you can put this or that or maybe you paid someone else to do that been wise probably saved you a little time and so that's simply what Paul is doing to Timothy here. He's, he's saying that you will minister, and, and in the last days, this is what you will face. And, and by the way, he just simply says in verse number 1, it's going to be hard. Ministry is difficult. And say, well, that's not very encouraging. I know, but that's what he says here, right? In the last times, verse number 1, but understand this, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. As the old King James says, there will be perilous times, treacherous times. I think that's the NIV, terrible times. I'm basically saying at the beginning of this, ministry is not easy. The culture, the place, the church is to exist. The light that we're to, to, to give off, the, the area of ground we're to serve and work and labor is not, a, it's not an easy place. It's not an easy task that God has given us. In fact, without the help of the Spirit of God, it is an impossible task. It is an impossible task. 
You find the Old Testament, uh, God asking the prophet, can these bones live? And he stands and looks over this graveyard of bones, and the prophet says, only you know, Lord. And it takes the Lord to make those bones live. So there is that spiritual aspect to the ministry, uh, the impossibility without the work of the Holy Spirit. But here he's saying that the difficulty that we face that will arise will be, will be from the culture. The culture that they're to serve in, that we're to serve in. We find that verses 2 through, excuse me, verses 2 through 4, look at them with me again. Now, there will be times of difficulty, and the reason there will be times of difficulty, one of the reasons is for people will be lovers of themselves. We lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive, disobedient to their parents, and the list goes on. It says part of the difficulty is because here is manifested for us in the culture uh, human depravity, a man's sinfulness, his rebellion, his, his characteristics, the attribute of the human heart that is at odds or at enmity with God. That's what he's listing here in this list for us. And there are times when we approach the Word of God and we, we approach it with with really with our arms open trying to grab any kind of help we can grab to see how it applies to our culture. Uh, one example I think is found in the book of Ruth. I love that uh, short little book. But I still to this day wonder what in the world the shoe is. If you know the book, maybe you know what I'm talking about. So you need help. You, you have to grapple with how we put our culture in the biblical text and how all those things go together. But, but when you come to a passage like this, it's as plain as the nose on your face. As if Paul is looking into the future and saying, let me describe the world that you here in the Adirondacks are going to... This is what you're going to face in 2022. Everywhere you turn, it's self-evident. It's unavoidable. It's undeniable that the description he gives is the world we live in. This is the modern age. Not just in America, but, but wholly across the continent. He begins chiefly, and rightly so, and we should not be surprised at it. He begins with love of self. And really, everything else he describes after that is just an outworking of you loving yourself. Of humanity's desire to satisfy his self, his heart set on himself. Every folly and every vice, every abuse, every form of idolatry, every violence to humanity and nature is all flowing from this chief sin, and that is love of self. They will be lovers of themselves. Every idol we cherish are only glimpses in the mirror and fractions of the image of you and me. Every pleasure we pursue and everything we, we regard and everything we delight and love in to find satisfaction in that is contrary to God and His ways is, is really a, a manifestation of self and our service and slavery to our own self. And some have suggested, and as you know, in secular, in the secular world, that one of the problems dealing with guilt and, and those things that just continue to go on, you never get off the roller coaster. And, and part of the guilt and the, the stuff that you deal with that and the shame is because you, you don't know how to love yourself. You need to learn how to love yourself, treat yourself better. 
I don't know who had the idea, but some teacher under the guise of Christianity grabbed a hold of that and ran out and left field and said, well, there it is. The reason the church doesn't love their neighbors, their self, is because they don't love their self. So let's, folks, practice and, and get into gear how to love ourselves and then we can love our neighbors. And the Bible says that's not our problem. Our problem is we love ourselves too much. The problem is we are the center of our world. We're, we're the center of everything going on. We're, we're slaves to an image. Whether we like it or not, we're slaves to an image of ourselves that we have. And it isn't just us, it's the world we live in. At the root of all of our trouble is the worship of us, so pervasive in our time. We struggle under the burden of identity. I know we've talked about identity politics, but, the, but identity in itself, not of politics or political positions, but of, of who at the very heart you are. The transgender movement and its attempt to be satisfied. People attempt to be satisfied, lost with who they are. Their attempt to love themselves and promote themselves above every natural boundary, every social boundary. It's just evident. And at the heart of the problem is, is self. It's the culture we live in. It's the very thing we promote. We fight for the authentic self to express some brave, courageous declaration of finally being who we are, which turns out our own God. We define ourselves. We define ourselves because we love ourselves. The idea of something other than what God has made us. The tragedy is so sad in our culture is not only that we do this, it is not enough that we love ourselves but we desire and demand that others love us the same way we love ourselves. We seek for affirmation. We seek for uh, validation. And, and we demand it when it's not received. That, that w- what we choose and the way we embrace ourselves and promote ourselves is right and good despite any way we do it. Is that not the culture we live in? So proud and bold we are at this as he uses the word arrogant here that we've taken a whole month to, to celebrate one's sexual preference and the only moral response that we can have as a society is to come along and congratulate and celebrate with otherwise we are hateful and deemed intolerable Now, it isn't before you think I'm just out on the left, out in the left field picking on people and their sexual preferences, the LGBTQ+, whatever it is. Every sin that manifests in our life and in our culture is rooted in this same thing. Love of money despite how we get it. The desire to, to continue to have, to build up or puff up ourselves in our egos. Notice the list with me just briefly. It's not only that, it's our pride and our arrogance, the abusiveness. Where do you think abusive comes from? 
to disregard another human being, to disregard someone underneath you or subordinate you, to take advantage of, to abuse anyone else, is to, is to serve yourself and your own sinful desires. Men don't abuse their wives and their families because they're angry. They don't do it because they got passionate problems. They do it because they love themselves more than they love their wives and their families. That is their chief God and the chief one they serve. I don't care what excuse they give. And the same thing was with all of it is manifested. All of it comes from the root of our love of self. Treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It's like an ugly sandwich that he lays out for you. You love in yourself and you love pleasures more than you love God and, and everything mixed in the middle. Now, this is the culture that you are to minister. This is the culture that God has set His church to be a light in. It's difficult because of the culture it's in. And is it remarkable that when Jesus calls disciples in His culture, in His day, with Jewish people who had the Torah, had the law, had teachers telling them all about God, and yet He still tells them, if you're going to follow Me, you need to what? Deny who? Yourself. Because the world says, gratify yourself. Religion says, save yourself. God says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Lose yourself for my name's sake, and you will be saved. Or as God tells us in the Old Testament, all the way back in the Old Testament, look to me to the ends of the earth and be saved. You make a terrible God. You make a terrible Savior. Over and over we see the futility of it. And yet here Christ is given to us to save us from the idol worship of ourselves as we turn from us. And that's really what the gospel is. Repent. Turn away from your sins. You turn from yourself and your own abilities and you turn to one who is sufficient and able to save. Well, it's difficult because of the culture we live in. It's also difficult because of the corruption within the church. He goes on speaking about evil teachers who very quickly will rise promoting all sorts of things that are religious and all sorts of things that are, are spiritual, if you might want to call that, but none of them have any power to save. Notice, as you see the text in front of you, he says in verse number 5, that having an appearance of godliness, this kind of shell of godliness, but they deny its power. He says, you need to stay away from people like that. Going further, he says, for uh, as a... Go into houses, creeping into houses, and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray in various passions. Basically he's saying that they're preying on the gullible and the weak. They're preying on the, those who are unstable. How many checks have been written from a living room to ministries who's promised if you give this seed, this faith seed, then God will bring it back to you ten times over. How many ministries saying if you write that check today and today on there's a special in heaven and we'll give you some kind of anointing. And the problem is, it isn't because they have some kind of religious affiliation. The problem is we're ministering in the world where they just lump all of it together. They say they follow Christ. You say you follow Christ. What's the difference? Timothy will face that in his own congregation, his own town. There'll be people coming and they'll be preaching something other than Jesus Christ, a religion, a godless religion, and, and, and the world will be like, Ephesus is the same Christ, isn't it? 
Same Christianity. We have the, the problem in our world that of those who come in and bearing some false teaching, some false doctrine, some something to take us away from Christ and the Word of God. And he says they're destructive, they're dangerous, they're doomed. Verse number nine, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. They were not of two men. The third thing we notice in the difficulty of the age we minister in is in the callousness of the people. You find that in verse or chapter number four. Turn over with me. <clears throat> verse number three, after this great exhortation to preach the word, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They just won't hear it. They won't put up with it. They won't stand it. They're just not going to have it. You ever been tired of something? You just drew the line in the sand and, and I'm, I'm done. Done with this. Maybe you've done that with your garden and decided you're going to mow it down and whatever. I don't know. We did that with our garden. We had a raised bed. I tore it all down. We shoveled the dirt out and threw it in the woods, you know, because we're done with it. I'm tired of it. <laughs> Weeding is ridiculous anyway. Heard a story in Europe, or you read the account of Wesley and Whitfield and their uh, friendly rivalry. It was not friendly. Um, they, they were going back and forth over the doctrine of predestination and Calvinism, and Wesley was not on that page, Whitfield was on that page, and so it was pretty heated uh, debate. And Wesley would tell the, his listeners, his hearers, when you go by Whitfield and he's preaching, because he'd preach all over the place, he's stick your fingers in your ears so that you don't hear him. <laughs> now, if you did that this morning, stuck your fingers in your ear, I just don't, I'd probably just sit down because I wouldn't know how to respond to that. <laughs> Tell the person beside you, help, it, help him out. But it is the ultimate, it is the ultimate expression of rejecting the message. It is a testimony to the callousness of their heart, their, their stiff neck. They, they will not listen. They will not be reproved. They will not be rebuked. And, and the thing about it is, in religion, is the same way in the world, and that is supply and demand. There's a demand for me to hear that I am the greatest, so I'm going to find somebody to tell me I am the greatest. You don't have to look very far. You can get on the Internet. If you don't like this sermon, you can go home and listen to another one. Maybe you'll like it and shop around. And he's saying that's what has taken place. There's a callousness in the, in the culture in the sense of they will not endure sound teaching. They'll find teachers, they'll tell them what they want to hear, and they'll go on with their business, loving themselves and other people, affirming them in the, affirming them in the same way. Well, we could add to that uh, very quickly. And finally, the difficulty of our age is found, the difficulty of our choices, because... Timothy, those who live godly will suffer persecution. That in itself is difficult. Would you agree with that? Well, he's just laying the, the, the view of the land. He's trying to give us an understanding of what ministry is going to look like, what ministry looks like in our age. Not to be discouraged or not to be depressed or, or to be set aside but just to have your eyes open and see what's going on in the world around you. To know that there is no greater need than in a culture like that than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
To know in a culture like that, that is dark and bent towards themselves, someone or a group of someones to come together and say, quit looking at yourself and look to Christ. To know in an age like that, that, that while all impossibilities lay in front of you, there is the impossibility of what God can do. With His Word and those who are devoted to Him. So it isn't like fold up your tent and, and come on where I'm at, Timothy. Though he does ask Timothy to come to where he's at for a different reason. Just quit because things are tough. Things have always been tough. And I think for some of us who've lived in a different age in America, it is harder for us to grapple with. Our kids have lived in a different world than we live in. Sometimes we're so focused on what it's not, so focused on nostalgia that we forget that now is the time to serve God. Now is the time for faithfulness. Now is the time that God has given, He's created us. He's placed us in, a, in by His providence in space and time for just a season as this. Do you believe that? And so naturally, what do you do? Well, you understand ministry is difficult. I get that. That's, that doesn't... Okay, I'm done with that. But he said ministry is to be carried out faithfully. Faithfully. Notice chapter number 3 as he continues on in verse number 10. If it wasn't difficult, there would be no need for ministry. Verse number 10, he begins this with a contrast. I've told you what it will be like in culture. I've told you what the false teachers would be like. You get an understanding of that. You live that in your own life. Verse number 10, he turns to him. He does this twice in the passage. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. So ministry is difficult. We could say that. What are you to do? What's your plan, Paul? What's your plan, Timothy? What's your plan, ABC? You could say that. What's your plan as an individual Christian? Well, isn't it refreshing that you don't always need a new one? I mean, we are so, we are so fixated on novelty that when, you, when I bought an iPhone 12, I got an iPhone 12, I was just thinking, you know, if I buy this today, in three months they're going to have a 13, and it may have an app or a feature, it may be able to make coffee for me, and I won't have it. <laughs> Because I just paid $1,000 for this iPhone 12, and you can't do that. It's ridiculous. I mean, we can no longer get out of the store until we think of something new. New plans and new books and new gadgets and all the other stuff that's going on. It's crazy. A new book, five ways how to read a book. I should actually write that, right? But can I say, church, there's something to be said about the antiquity of Christianity. The faith once delivered to the saints. We don't have to rewrite a book. We don't have to rediscover God's views on life and His purpose and creation and His design for relationships in the church, out of the church. We don't have to, we don't have to get something new. It's the the same things that the church has been preaching and teaching all along the way. I'm amazed. I read Chrysostom. I said that wrong. You can correct me later. 
I read his writings and it sounds like he could be preaching in our pulpit. Why? Because the principles, the word never changes. He said, you've had the thing, you've learned it, you've, you've seen it, you've seen it laid out. You don't need anything new. You need to be reminded of, of what works. You know, all churches, we grew up in a church that was very anti-creedal, I guess in some ways you could say that. And by that, they just didn't acknowledge any of the church creeds or anything. I think the church started in 1930, maybe that's what we believe. That's not true. But there is something to be said that all of us, all churches, no matter what background you've come from, is creedal in the sense that there are doctrines that are set that the church has stood on since it's began. If it's not, I would suggest that you find a different place to go. Now, some churches are more open about their confessions as they try to continue to bring those in front of the people as they go through the Apostles' Creed and, and all the other confessions throughout uh, church history. But nevertheless, it is continually bringing us back to what we believe is not new. What we believe is not new. There's, there's weight to it. There's antiquity to it. And so naturally, he goes through this list of, of things going on. You'll suffer, and as I've suffered, I've been faithful. You've got an example how to be faithful. That's not going to change. But look at me, verse number 14 of chapter 3. Again, you're turning back to Timothy after he speaks about people are going to get worse and worse. He says in verse number 14, But as for you, what do we need in this day? We need people who continue. That's not very profound, is it? You thought I'd just break you out a Greek word and, and define it in several different ways and pronounce it or enunciate it correctly? I'm not. It just says continue. The word just simply means abide, live, stay at, stay with. He said, Timothy, while all of this is going on, all of this, and it has to, if you put it all together and you think about it, it has to be hitting you like a ton of bricks or constantly coming at you. And he says, well, well, maybe it is, Timothy, but this is what I want you to do in the middle of it. Continue. Continue. We have enough people in, in Christian circles who are waving Christ's flag one month and then next month they're waving the world's. It's like riding a roller coaster with them. It's, that's not how we're to be effective. That's not how we're to live this life. That's not how we're to minister in a dark world. Now, when I say minister, you may think, well, that's good for the elders. They need to learn how to minister in a dark world. I think he's speaking about ministers. It's a word to all of us. Us corporately together as a church as we minister together in the ways that we do this. But you individually as you're a light and a witness and a testimony to Jesus Christ. It, it is a, there is a need. Your family needs. Your, the, the world around you. Your neighbor needs someone who is consistent and continues. And they're lowness. They know who to go to. They may not believe right away. They may not believe what you believe. They may not get on the same page. They may have different leanings. But they at least know what you believe. And you're consistent in what you believe. He's saying, Timothy, in the middle of all of this, if you're going to make an impact, if you're going to be faithful, continue. Continue. That God would give us a stick-to-itness. I know that isn't a word, but you get it. Perseverance. 
and the world and the work in which he's given us. And that we would continue, keep on walking in the way we learn. Keep on walking and continue in the word. That's what he's saying here in the remainder of this. Continue, but continue in what? Well, not just continue to breathe. We have to do that. Not to continue to get up out of bed and continue to go to bed at night time. We tend to do that, except last night. Some of you slept in. That's why you're late this morning. We know. Up too late last night. But they're to continue. He is to continue in the Word. It's the emphasis of the last verse. You've, you know the Holy Scriptures. You've learned them from a youth. Continue in those things that you have learned and you've become fully convinced of. And he goes in, and why we're to do this is because it is God's Word. Verse number 16, all Scripture. Huh? How many is that? That's a pretty good response. All Scripture is breathed out by whom? You have 66 books in your hand. And we're not counting a table of contents and the maps and all the other stuff like that. You get that. But, but those 66 books, we believe, based upon the authority of God's Word, that it is God's Word. It is God's infallible Word to us. It is His message, His letter, His instruction, His authority, His, His rule, His perception. It is God's Word. We continue in the Word. We continue faithfully because we're not continuing in our own wisdom. Isn't that good? We don't continue in our own genius or our own cunning or our own whatever else we might find. You to continue in the wisdom and the ways and the will of God by continuing in His Word. And praise God that He's given us a Word. That He's a communicating God. He's not silent. He speaks. He speaks the world into existence. He speaks through the prophets in the Old Testament. He speaks to us clearly through the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of His image. And He speaks to us continually through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in His Word. Continue in the Word because it is God's Word, but continue in the Word because it's profitable. How many of you believe that? That's what He says here. It's God's Word. Well, that's great. We can... Put it in a glass box or build a museum in D.C. I guess that's where it's at. I'd love to go to that, by the way. You put it in a museum and, and you have tours and people look at it and original manuscript. You've got all kinds of stuff that you can do with God's Word. But he says it's meant to be handled a little bit more than that. Or to look at this as God's power. Or to look at this as profitable to us. This is what he's saying here. All Scripture is breathed out by God in what? It's profitable. It's useful. It's helpful. It's the very thing which God uses to get His work and His will done. First of all, it's profitable as we see earlier on. Profitable for salvation. Look at it with me. Verse number 15, from how from a childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. He's speaking about your Old Testament here. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. It's the Word of God that we, we find that God loved the world. It's the Word of God that we find that He gave His only begotten Son. It's the Word of God that, that we find that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yet by faith, anyone who turns to Him can be saved. It is in His Word that faith comes. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by what? 
by the word of God. It is profitable in saving us. It is profitable in, in teaching. He goes on in verse number 16. It is profitable for teaching. and That's how to order our lives for reproof. That's how to expose our lives where we're in error for correction. That's how to reorder our lives for training. That's just general guidelines to go on. It's profitable for everything you need that the man of God may be equipped. You see, we're just not interested in blown away by the nature of God's Word, although it ought to blow us away. I could use that expression. I don't even think we say stuff like that anymore. It's the only thing that came to my mind just then. But also the power and the practical outworking of the Word of God in our life. We see the hardness in society, the difficulty we face, the difficulty of the task ahead of us. But God give us His Word. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. A very familiar passage for us. Just to see that power on display. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. This is all worth reading. I won't do that just for the sake of time. We'll just pick up in verse number 9. He says, Do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you know that? That's a good question. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. It just throws everybody in the same boat. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But notice he goes on and doesn't stop writing. He says, And such were some of you. Isn't that beautiful? The world is difficult. Corinthian Corinth is a mess. But look at the power of the word of God transforming the lives of the citizens there. Such were some of you. But you've been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says in the beginning of this letter, when I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified so that your salvation would not rest on the wisdom and craftiness or cunningness of man, but that it would rest on the wisdom of God and the power of God. And that's what he's telling Timothy here, stick with what works. It's the very thing that God has given to us to use. Now, it isn't. It's the very thing God has given us to use. And if that's the case, then we should give care how we how we listen to the word, how we apply it to our lives. Turn back with me to Second Timothy. It speaks to us as a church, our personal application of the Word of God as we are being transformed, as we're being conformed into the image of Christ, as the Word of God shapes us and works in our lives. So it speaks to the, the practicalness of the continuance that the church needs in that way, but it's also in the way in which we minister from the Word of God through the Word of God. 
That we share the gospel. We share the wisdom and ways of God and not the wisdom and ways of this world. Now, the world is difficult, but God has given us tools we need to be faithful and effective. This past week, we went to Albany, a couple of us from church. Albany is number six on the, on the nation's top ten most post-Christian cities in America. To say that real slowly, you get in trouble. And it's no surprise to us when we see what comes out of Albany, New York, right? And yet in the middle of the city, there's such a refreshing powerful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God that that you could witness. And it's a homeless shelter. There in the middle of the city that is post-Christian, God has established and, and allowed this ministry to flourish that is preaching and teaching and modeling the word of God. We took a tour of the facility. It's ridiculous what they're doing. And by the way, pray for them as they seek to build another uh, building for expansion. They need it desperately. Uh, I mean, they're just continuing to grow. The need is great. The mayor won't, won't sign the thing. She didn't like it. So pray, right? And everywhere you walk in those buildings, which is, is just it, it's beautiful facilities, everywhere you walk, there's scripture in front of your eyes, all over the walls. It's not just in front of your eyes there. But it's lived out among the staff and the volunteers that continue to give themselves. And it's a reminder of what Timothy's to do, you and I to do in a world that is dark, a culture that is hard against the gospel. Continue. Continue. Be faithful. Let me just, in closing, mention thirdly because it would be, it would be wrong not to mention this. And that is, Paul shows us the success of ministry. There's something to be said of order. We um, have put a clock here in the mornings and Sunday mornings to count down so that we might try to gain a little order before we start. You've noticed that, right? It worked really well when we first put it up, but now you've become immune to that. And I don't know what we're going to do next. Kids have even counted down. I mean, we've done all kinds of things. So there's something to be said about order in the world we live in. Uh, Well, there's also a different kind of order, and that is the order uh, order of things. Three comes after two. That's not earth-shattering. You can go home and over dinner say, well, the pastor told us three come after two. What an amazing guy we've got uh, (laughs) leading us. He has a doctorate somewhere. We're not sure where he got it. You tend to put your socks on before you put your shoes on. Unless you've got those slides. I don't know how you do that, but, but you get the point. All I'm saying is it's worth noting the order here. Paul is telling Timothy to be faithful in the ministry that God has given him. Be faithful in the world that God has placed him. This is the season. This is the time you're to serve Timothy. Be faithful. The success is found at the end. You find that at the end here, verse number 6. You're to fulfill your ministry, for I am ready, verse number 6, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is coming. I told you, you should mark this. It should be all of our desires fixed upon 
and someone said, tattooed on the back of your eyeballs. I don't know if that works, but I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's saying that there is a reward at the end of all of this. Success is not found in the middle of it. And if we get that out of balance, as we've often seen in the world, and, and we say, well, we're only, we're, we're only faithful if we're successful, then we miss, we miss it. Well, we tend to shift things and go things our own way. But it is faithfulness that determines our success. And our success is term, determined before the presence of God and not in the immediate moment. Otherwise, Jeremiah would be an utter failure. And yet, we know he wasn't. Now, Paul is speaking to one of the fruits of his labors in this life. To a, who is pastoring a church that is founded by his hard work and labor and preaching of the gospel. God gives us... a, a prosperous ministries here. He gives us places where we see the Word of God taking root in, in people's lives, but, but ultimately we minister and we serve and our continuance isn't on the immediate moment, but is on the eternal reward that awaits us. That's what Paul is saying. There's an end of our race. There's an end of the ministry. There's an end of all of this, and the reward is found in the presence of Christ. And that is where we should be fixed and where our eyes should be fixed. That is where faithfulness points us. The success that's found in the presence of God and hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The success which he reminds us that it isn't just something that he awaits. Notice in verse number 8, Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Man, that's, that's just something to think about. Paul was a, he was a pretty exceptional guy, wouldn't you agree? Worked more than all the other apostles, he said. He suffered more. I mean, so naturally he would have a crown of something. And I love that he doesn't stop there. Not to me only, or not only to me, but also to all who have Loved his appearing. Oh, there's a day when we will see him face to face. The reward of that is, is almost unimaginable, more than sufficient. And yet even with that, there's greater glory that he gives his saints. We serve the season that he has called us in the ministry that he has given us. We serve in the moment that we live with our eyes set upon the day we will see him face to face. The world is difficult. We get it. I've said it enough today to where you don't have to say it all week when you watch the news. But let us not be discouraged or distracted. But fulfill the ministry that God has given us. Because one day... We will finish our race. We will finish the course. And we will see him face to face. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this moment we gather together. So thankful for your grace and the encouragement to continue on faithfully as you have called us. So we just pray that you would uh, use your word in our lives. Use a word of encouragement to us and a reminder to us to make the most of the moment in which you have given us. To serve and work in the day as you tell us 
for the night comes when no one will work. So we pray for that. Uh, we pray for that encouragement, that renewal, that power to perform your will in Jesus' name. Amen.